0: Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the Epistle to the Hebrews. We'll study how we should expect testing, trials, and discipline from God as God's children, and how He uses that discipline to make us more Christ-like through the sanctification process. So if you'll open up your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 12, we'll begin our lesson. Let me open us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, We thank you for this day and for this group and for your word and the opportunity to study your word. And as we continue our study of the epistle to the Hebrews this morning, we'll be talking about endurance and running the race that you've set before us. And Father, I just ask that you help us realize that when we are going through difficult times that you're in control, you're not trying to punish us, you're actually trying to teach us something or teach others something. You're trying to use that situation in a very positive way for us as Christians and help us to realize that. And as we study that this morning, we ask that your word continue to change us, continue to make us more Christ-like as we'll read about this morning. I ask that you speak through me. Let it be your words, not mine, and also guide our discussion. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're in Hebrews 12. We're getting close to the end. We'll finish up Hebrews next week. Where we left off in Hebrews 11 last week, sometimes called the faith chapter, and we saw that faith has always been the way to salvation. That even the Old Testament saints, the way that they were saved was because of their faith. It wasn't because of anything they did, it wasn't from works, it wasn't from doing a bunch of religious practices. None of that got anyone saved. Never has. It's always been God's plan that the way that we are declared righteous by him is through our faith. And so we studied the faith chapter last week. Today is sometimes called the hope chapter. And what comes after hope? Faith, hope, and what? Love. Next week will be the love chapter, as you'll see. As we studied faith the last couple of weeks, as we concluded our discussion last week, we started seeing that the testing of our faith is part of God's plan as well, that he does test our faith. And we saw how many of the Old Testament saints' faith were tested. And I made the comment that faith that's not tested isn't much faith at all. And so we're going to continue that theme this morning as we look at endurance through the testing. So let's begin with chapter 12. I'm going to read the first verse, and then we're going to come back, and I'll talk about it a little bit. It says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, okay, I saw some commentators that said, perhaps this cloud of witnesses surrounding us, it says here, perhaps these are the dead Old Testament saints that we read about in the last couple of weeks, that they're up in heaven looking down on us and witnessing what we're doing and watching us, I don't think that's what this says at all. And there's many other commentators that say, no, what this is talking about is all those Old Testament saints that we read about in chapter 11, they were witnesses to us. Those are the witnesses this is describing. As they live their life, we can now read about how their faith, and got them through all their difficulties, through their trials and what have you, They were serving as witnesses, and now what I think the writer is saying, I believe this, is he's saying, we saw those witnesses, now we're up, okay? God's given us a race, now we've got to be witnesses to help bring others to faith. So, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This is saying, we've got to get in the race. Christians, we're going to have difficulties. Just count on it. We're told that. Jesus told us in this world, we're going to have tribulation. But don't give up. It's grueling, and it requires endurance and self-discipline. It talks about laying aside these encumbrances, which means get the things out of your life that are weighing you down in the sin that entangles us. That could be our pride, our self-reliance. It could be our possessions, material things that we're focused on, whatever that is getting in the way and entangling us from running the race with endurance and with determination that God has set before us. In other words, he's in control of the race, and he's put us in the race. We're in a race. Paul wrote quite a bit about races. Let me show you over in 1 Corinthians. In fact, if you'll go over there, I want to show you a couple of verses in 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians 9.24, Corinthians is right after Romans, Romans is right after Acts. 1 Corinthians 9.24, this is Paul writing, he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win, and everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, that's all they ran for, Their prize, everything they went through was just to get a wreath. But we, an imperishable, meaning an imperishable reward. Verse 26, therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I buffet my body and make it my slave. lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. So what is he talking about? What is this prize that we're running for? So, St. Corinthians, and just go over to chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. But if any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. So this is talking about believers and What we do with the gifts, the opportunities, the things that God has given us, what are we doing with those? Are we investing with the idea of eventually having a reward from God in heaven? That's the race God's given us, and he's actually given us some motivation here. He's told us, run the race in a way that you can win and not be disqualified, meaning you may get your ticket punched that you're going to go to heaven, but you're going to show up and you're not going to get any reward. That's perhaps what he's talking about here. So go back over to Hebrews 12. And God will use trials and difficulties to bring us and to help bring others closer to him. And I think what the writer here is saying is don't be content to just be saved. Desire to get in the race. God has a race for us. We've read many times over in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, that we don't do good works to earn our salvation, but God has prepared good works for us to do. And he wants to do them in and through us as part of the race. So desire to help others. There's a war against Satan going on. It's going on right now. And God wants each of us to play a part. Verse 2, I'm back over in Hebrews 12, verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross Despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So, Jesus, He gives us our faith. He's the perfecter. He's the one that got it all done. It's a completed thing for us as Christians. Let me just show you, real quick, John chapter 19, verse 30. It says, When Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. And I've told you before that what's translated here as it is finished. The word tetelestai, that's the original. That is what was stamped on the bills when you paid your bill. It means debt paid in full, debt canceled, debt paid for. So it's finished. And so Jesus is the perfecter. Even the Old Testament saints that we read about last week, they died looking forward to a Messiah that would pay the debt for their sins. But their salvation wasn't perfected until Jesus died and paid that debt. I said it was kind of like they were saved on credit, waiting for Jesus to pay their debt. Jesus is the perfecter. He also lived his life as a perfect example of faith, the way Jesus did live. And I think the writer here is calling us to run the race in a way that, as it said in Matthew 25, 21, that will not only receive our rewards in heaven, but will hear from Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we should be working towards. But it's finished. It says here at the end of verse 2, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And he didn't sit down because he was tired. He went back to a place of power right at the right hand of God the Father showing that his sacrifice was acceptable to God the Father. He completed the plan to redeem us. And for us as Christians, all we have to do is place our faith in Jesus Christ, and we're saved. It's a completed deal. None of us will go through what Jesus endured. This is described as a race, and it's a long-distance race. It's not a short-distance race, all right? There's going to be ups and downs. There's going to be troubles along the way. We're going to be persecuted. He's talking here to the Hebrews who were beginning to get persecuted. They were beginning to see that it was really tough to become a Christian. You would lose friends, family. They'd lose their synagogue. They'd get kicked out of their synagogue, which that was their community. To not be able to go to their synagogue anymore, that was a hardship. So there were many of them that were facing difficult times Just as we do, we probably haven't faced anything like what they faced. But he's saying, Don't turn back, stay focused, run with endurance. God's in control. Verse 3 For consider him, talking about Jesus, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. So, as I said, these people who he's writing to, they were going through some difficult times as believers. The writer here is saying, don't ask why. God's sovereign. He's in control. But ask, what is God trying to do through that difficulty? So as we move into verses 4 through 13, it's going to talk about the endurance of discipline. Verse 4, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. We may suffer from time to time, but again, we're not going to have to go through what Jesus did. You haven't suffered like he did. We are going to have trials. Hardship helps us grow. We saw when we were in chapter 11, even the patriarchs went through very difficult times. So it's nothing new. We've talked about Job several times, looked at parts of Job before. We haven't studied the whole book. But Job went through some severe hardship. And again, what he went through, it was not punishment. It wasn't punishment for sin, but it was to educate Job about the character of God. And he learned to trust God. By going through all of that. And that's what God wants to do through us. Verse 5, it says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. He's saying, look, you should be encouraged because this was written about you as a son of God. And he's going to quote now Proverbs 3, verses 11 through 12. It says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. So the writer here is saying, don't fail to see God's hand in whatever it is you're going through. God's in the middle of it. Don't be discouraged by it. God's going to discipline believers, and that discipline process is going to happen throughout our life here. That's part of the sanctification process. What is sanctification? It's to make us more Christ-like, and we're going to see that when we get a little bit further in the text. But we shouldn't complain. We shouldn't be grumbling about it. We should realize that God loves us, and he's trying to show us something through whatever we're going through. We shouldn't become unresponsive or depressed when God disciplines us. He's disciplining us because he wants to do something. He wants to change something in us, perhaps. I'll give you some of the other reasons that he puts us through discipline in just a minute. But when we're going through that, it actually proves that God loves us. We're going to see here. If we weren't his sons, and that includes females as well, we're children of God, and we're going to go through discipline. It proves that he loves us, and it does prove our sonship. Sometimes his discipline can be pretty severe when it needs to be. But what's interesting is, even as parents... We don't go throughout the neighborhood and go discipline everybody else's children. We discipline our own children, and that's what God is doing. We're going to see here, let's read verse 7 and 8. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? God grieves like a parent when he disciplines us. You know, it's sort of like when our parents would say, look, this spanking is going to hurt me more than you. Well, my response to that is it's going to hurt me in a different place, and it's hurting you. But in any event, that's how God feels about it. He's not trying to punish us. He's trying to work something in us to change us, to make us more Christ-like. Verse 8, but if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So this is sort of saying, look, if you're not going through difficult times, And I know some people like this, perhaps you do too. You look at their life, you know they're not believers, and yet it seems like their life just goes, rocks along, everything looks fine all the time. Anybody know anybody like that? Well, I think what this is saying, perhaps, it's definitely saying it. I don't know if it's about the people that I'm thinking of. But if you don't ever go through difficult times, you might not be a son of God. He's not disciplining you because you're not one of his sons or daughters. So we should expect it. And if you are going through difficult times, it's because God loves us. He wants to help us grow. And he wants to continue, as I said in the analogy last week, the creating of gold. He wants to put some heat in there and get that dross to come up to the top so he can skim it off until someday... When the sanctification process is complete, he can look at that gold and see Christ's image in us. This is difficult, but I think this is saying we should say thank you when God gives us discipline. You know, we look back on the discipline that our parents gave us, and we can say, you know, yeah, I needed that. I'm glad they did that. I think I've even mentioned to you the time my son, he was 20 years old, and we were out hunting. And for the first time, he said, Dad, I just want to tell you, I want to thank you. I now realize that sometimes I thought you were a real hard ass, but now I see you were doing it because you love me, and it would have been a whole lot easier just to let me do whatever I wanted to do. And he said, I look at some of my other friends whose parents I thought were really cool, and they were like all of our best friends. You know, They were like part of the group, and they let us do whatever we want to do. And he said, most of my friends whose parents were that way are totally screwed up now. On drugs or whatever. That's what God is trying to do to us. We do it as parents. It's not easy sometimes, but we do it because we love our children, and that's why God is doing it to us. And we loved our fathers and mothers when they disciplined, even when it might have even been wrong at times. Sometimes they were just angry about something else, and we happened to be walking in the door, or maybe they were annoyed by us. But in any event, look what it says in verse 10. For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. You see that? What this is saying is our parents, they did the best they could. We as parents did the best we could. Probably not always right, but God's discipline is always perfect. And why? Why does he do it? That we may share in his holiness. See, this is the sanctification process. He's already deemed us righteous, But now he wants to make us holy, and he's got to put us through discipline. Discipline can be for a number of reasons. One, it may be discipline for our sin. It's not to hurt us or punish us or condemn us. Jesus has already paid for that. So he's not punishing us, but he is trying to teach us not to sin anymore. There's always consequences of sin. It might be to prevent us from sinning further. It might be to educate us about who God is and how he wants us to live our lives. It could be to just demonstrate to us that we are his sons and that he does care for us as children of God. He loves us and he's wanting to draw us into a closer relationship with him. But as I said, if you can focus on the what and not the why, then we can actually be trained by God's discipline and we will then learn to trust in God's plan and have hope in God's sovereignty He's always in control, he's always in charge, and he wants to make us holy, as we see in verse 10. We're going to get there, but let me show you. Skip down to verse 14. You see sanctification down there? You see it in verse 14? I'll point it out when we get there, but that's part of the process. Verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yeah, when you're going through it, sometimes it can not be very comfortable. It says, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So think of it kind of like physical training or physical therapy. When you're going through it, it doesn't feel very good at the time. But when you get through it, it actually makes you feel better at the end. And what he wants to do is put us through some pain or discomfort at first, but that's going to draw us into a closer relationship with God. I do want to point out that there are verses in the Bible that talk about continued rebellion. You might be corrected and you keep straying, keep straying, keep straying. You're not going to lose your salvation. But eventually, he may just take you out, take you out of the game. You'll get to heaven way earlier than you expected. You're not going to lose your salvation, but he's going to pull you out. And there's examples of that, like Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. They just got pulled out, zapped up. I'll show you another one. 1 Corinthians 11:30. Go back over to 1 Corinthians. We were just over there. Here's an example. He's talking about sin. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians. He's talking about sin and this is actually talking about not partaking in the Lord's Supper with a correct heart what he's talking about, but it can be any sin. Verse 30 it says, "For this reason many among you are weak and sick, so it may make you just ill, physically ill." But look what it says, in a number, sleep. So it can bring sickness and it can bring death. It'll just pull you out, pull you out of the game. Okay, I'm going back over to Hebrews 12, verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. So he's saying, teach sound doctrine to others. Exhort people to live their life the way it's spelled out in God's Word, to apply the Word, encourage others We should live out our faith in a way that reflects Jesus to others. Verse 13, and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So keep your lane straight, run the race that God gave you, and reflect Jesus to others. Verse 14, pursue peace with all men. You see this? It doesn't say pursue peace with just the people that you like. It says, all men. Another verse that really hits home for me is Romans 12, 18. I'll just go over there and read that to you. I love this verse. It says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Okay, so there's some people you're not going to be able to be peace with. Like, they just hate you. They're going to give you a hard time. They hate you, okay? But as far as it depends on us, be at peace with others. So the people that are going to treat you like that, just try as best you can, be at peace with them. But not everybody's going to love you. In fact, that's part of the persecution that we're going to go through. I'm going back over to Hebrews 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with all men, and here it is, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. You see that? you got to go through the sanctification process. If God is disciplining you and you're not improving And you're not becoming more Christ-like, which is the sanctification process. You must not be God's son. You see that? And it refers back right up to verse 10 where it says that we may share in his holiness. That's what we're going through the sanctification process. So my Bible says without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Yeah. And and so holiness and sanctification are... Holiness is the result of sanctification. You see in verse 10... Yeah, that's the holiness. And don't confuse that with works. That's not what this is saying. What he's talking about is the process of sanctification to rub off those rough edges, to get the dross out of our life. That's what he's talking about. And if that's not happening to you, I think we saw that it's saying that maybe you aren't a child of God. He's not paying any attention to you because you don't want any part of it. You see that? Okay. Verse 15, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Help others grow, be an instrument of God to win the unsaved, show them the way that they can live this life that we have as being a child of God. And part of what we're to do so that we can reflect Jesus to others is this peace. It doesn't say have peace with everyone. It says pursue it. And as I said, pursue it with others. Try to avoid conflict with others. Try to reflect Jesus to others so that they will see that we live our lives differently than others. We're not just running around bitter and causing trouble with everyone around us. Verse 16, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. So you remember this story. Esau, he gave up his inheritance so that he could have the earthly satisfaction of a meal. He didn't value his inheritance, so he gave it away so he could get the meal from his brother. He wanted immediate gratification rather than focusing on God and God's glory. And so he deliberately turned away from God. And when you do that, it leads to disgrace and ruin. What's so sad, I think Esau may be one of the most godless people in the Bible outside of Judas when you read that story. They had received great light, great revelation from God. I mean, Judas was right there with God, but they turned away from it. They turned a blind eye to God. They turned away from him. And what we saw in Esau, he only trusted in himself. He regretted giving away his birthright, but he never repented. We're going to see that here in the next verse. He wasted God's blessings, but he didn't want God on God's terms. He wanted to do it his way. And Jacob, his brother, who then received the birthright, he certainly wasn't a model of ethics or integrity, but he did truly value the things of God. It says in verse 17, For you know that even afterwards when he, he's talking about Esau, desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, For he found no place for repentance. See, he never repented. Though he sought for it with tears. He sought for blessings with tears, but he never repented. Verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind. I'm going to keep reading and then I'm going to come back and explain this. And to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further words should be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. What is this talking about? We're going to see a contrast again. And we talked about this a lot in the first chapters of Hebrews. The writer here is going to now one more time give a contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And what he's talking about here is the giving of the Old Covenant. And you may recall how the people of Israel were so afraid of God. They wouldn't even say God's name. They were so afraid of God. Let me show you one verse real quick over in Exodus that really summarizes some of this. I'm going to go to Exodus 10. No, I I could show you something there. I'm going to go to 20. I don't have time to cover all of this today. Exodus 20. And I'm going to begin in verse 18. It says, And all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet. This is when Moses is meeting with God. And the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Okay? That's what these verses are describing that we just read. Verse 19, Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let not God speak to us lest we die. You see? They wanted Moses to go talk to God. They didn't want to talk to God. They were afraid of God. And that's what this is talking about here in the first part. So he's comparing the old covenant and the giving of the law to Moses and how it was given to them. So he's comparing that, Mount Sinai, in the old covenant, with now the Mount Zion, which is Jesus, Jerusalem, in the heavenly kingdom, verse 22. That was the old covenant, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the myriads of angels, to the general assembly in the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. So this is talking about not only Jesus coming, but this is talking about the future, heavenly Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth, And how we've been made perfect by Christ's blood. It's already a done deal, as I said. It's been completed. And we'll be there with the angels. This is describing the other people who will be with us. Myriads of angels. Now, angels are there. We don't worship angels. They're there. They're created beings. They're also worshiping God along with us as believers. And you can read about that in Revelation 19, verse 10, if you want. The saints are going to be there. All believers will be there in heaven because we've been made perfect through what Jesus did. And it says it right here in verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Our citizenship is in the Father's house, New Jerusalem. Our gathering is not to a place. It's to a person. It's to Jesus. We'll be gathered to Christ And this is talking about the new covenant here in verse 24, which we spent some time looking at, which is in Jeremiah 31, 31. It replaced the old covenant, the old law, and it's enacted by Jesus and what he did on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, which then paved the way for us to reconcile with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. Verse 25, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. So here's another warning. To not reject God. Israel had ignored God at Mount Sinai. And I think the writer here is saying, don't ignore Jesus from Mount Zion. Or you're not going to be saved. You're going to miss out. You're going to miss out on heaven. You're going to miss out on eternal life. He references the blood of Abel, which when you read in the Bible, the blood of Abel cried out for vengeance, but the blood of Christ calls out forgiveness. That's where we get our forgiveness. Every single person is going to have to stand before God, and there's only going to be two camps. There's going to be the camp that stands before God that wants to be judged on the basis of their own works, They didn't want to accept payment of our debt by Jesus. So they're going to go in on their own. And we've read many, many times in Revelation, none of them make it. None of them make it through. Isaiah 64, 6 says their works are nothing but filthy rags. And then there's the group of us as believers. We're just as messed up, but our debt's been paid. We're going in on the basis of Jesus Christ. And we're saying he paid our debt. We're so thankful And so we get to go and have eternal life. Our names are written in the book of life. You can look at that in Revelation 20, verse 12. Verse 26, And his voice shook the earth then. So we saw God's voice shook the earth when he was with Moses on Mount Sinai. But now watch what's going to happen. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heaven. This is actually from the Old Testament book of Haggai, chapter 2, verse 6. But if you want to go look in Revelation 6, verses 12 through 14, it talks about how there's going to be earthquakes, there's going to be floods, there's going to be all kinds of moving of things when Jesus returns. Verse 27, and this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken. This is referring to God's judgment, As of created things, in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. And those things that remain, that will be the new heaven and the new earth, a new Jerusalem. That's all described in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 2. Verse 28. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, that's the heavenly kingdom, this is what we receive, so this is again talking about eternal security, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So there is going to be judgment for those who are not believers, but our response as believers, our right response, is to show God how thankful we are for what Jesus has done for us. We should do that through our worship of God, through our holy service to Him, in the way we live our life, in the way that we reach out to non-believers. But there is going to be a final judgment. It is coming for unbelievers. That's the consuming fire. And I think the writer is encouraging us to do is really have a heart of thanksgiving. Be so thankful for what Jesus Christ has done for us. Because we deserve the same judgment that the unbelievers are going to get. It's only because of what Jesus did for us that we avoid that. So let me wrap it up and then I'd love to hear any comments you may have. Every person has to choose either to be judged on the basis of their own works or on the basis of what Jesus Christ's atoning work did for us. As Christians, we should be so thankful for God's discipline, not resentful, not complaining about it. It evidences that we are indeed God's children, and discipline will continue all our life as a part of the sanctification process. And let me just mention this. You know, I've told you about the terrible tragedy with my daughter. She was born normal and doctor really messed up on a simple procedure when she was just two months old that left her with brain damage and all kinds of problems. We took her home after being in intensive care for about four months. They just told us we should take her home. She'd be more comfortable dying at home. That was the hardest thing I've ever gone through in my life. And I didn't really understand it all. But when I look back on it now, it's so clear to me that God was using that to rub off a lot of my rough edges. He used it in a very positive way. I was a Christian, but I had no idea how self-absorbed and self-focused on myself I was. And I still have that problem from time to time. But man, I mean, I had it big time, and I didn't even realize it, how I really didn't care about anybody other than myself. God used that terrible, terrible tragedy in my life to totally change me, give me empathy that I'd never even knew what that was before. And so I'd share that not to call attention to myself, but perhaps to help anybody else either here or on the call or listening later, that if you're going through a real hard time, you might not even understand it at the time. And you may go to the grave and not fully understand it. I won't ever fully understand Lindley's situation, my daughter's situation, until I get to heaven. But I can definitely look at it and see so much good that came from it. And so I'm sharing that to give encouragement. When you are going through a hard time, you might not see the good in it. But if you just trust God and ask, I think he will show you some of the what, what he is trying to do through that if you just ask. Finally, just to continue to wrap up, show gratitude to God for what Jesus has done for us. We should worship him. Repentance. What that word means is turn from our sin. It means seek God's help. Realize that God is saying that sin and we should turn away from it. And we can't do it without God's help. So let me open it up. What questions or comments or what resonated with you in today's lesson? Larry, what you were just saying about women, um, made me think about your son probably a month from now. Yes. So, um, yeah. And she is relying on her big time. I mean, I, I can't even imagine what she's going through, but it's encouraging to hear that she's relying on faith. And what's great about that, and I try to use that when people lose a child or lose a spouse, lose a loved one, they're going to go through the grieving process. That's normal. But when they still cling to their faith, there's so many people that I've talked to, even within weeks or months after I'll ask them, do you feel closer to God now? And they'll say, absolutely. And I said, let me tell you, you should be very encouraged by that because that's evidence that you have saving faith. If you ever wondered, you know, and we all do, I think, from time to time, am I saved, am I really saved? When you go through a difficult time like that and you still have your faith, that's God telling you you have saving faith. That's good. You know, the comment about getting along with everybody as well as you can, but you're not gonna get along with everybody made me look up John fifteen, eighteen where Jesus said, Yeah, you know, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. Exactly. And expect it. Yeah. When you're persecuted, when people call you out because of your beliefs, take joy in that. That's good. Will you see the hope in this chapter? Hope doesn't mean I'm hoping to win the lottery, kind of hope. Like, it's probably not going to happen. Hope is confidence that God's in control. And we're being told here that he's going to test us. We're going to go through some tough stuff. That's when he's working in our lives. And to at least now recognize that God's up to something. When we're going through a difficult time, he's up to something. And we're children of his. And he's up to something. He's trying to do something. Pray and ask for him to show you the what. What is he trying to do? You know why? The why is because you're his child. He's trying to make you more Christ-like. So it's a positive hope. mentioned so many times in here that it's a done deal. So we're going to heaven. The hope is we know where we're going. It's confidence. Very encouraging. Thank you for joining us today. Larry would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to Larry at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this weekly podcast, and Larry's weekly blog at LarryO'Donnell.com. We hope you will join us next time as we continue our study.